Well, good evening. Um, thank you for coming to tonight's class. Uh, I'm new to this, uh, even though I've been a pastor now for six years here. For the last six years, I've been up in the youth room. So usually I'm speaking to a uh, room full of sweaty teenagers, and I'm trying to get them to just settle down. So thanks for bearing with me as I adjust to a new schedule and a new normal. Um, I recognize that the people who've gone before me, specifically Chuck and Blake, who've taught the main class on Wednesday nights, have left big shoes for me to fill. And uh, I thank you in advance for bearing with me as I seek to try to emulate them. We're going to be looking at the book of 1 Timothy this year. I believe if we pace it right, we'll also be able to look at 2 Timothy um, allowing a little bit of freedom, whether we want to stretch out First Timothy and have, have us go through First Timothy all the way until the end of April, or if we could get a, go through First Timothy at a quicker pace and also include Second Timothy. I'm not sure exactly yet, but rest assured, we will at least go through First Timothy this year. And I'm very excited to go through this book. I'll explain why in just a little bit. But before we say anything more, I'd like to ask the Lord's blessing on our time together, and then we'll open First Timothy and study this book together. Let's pray. Lord, you are so amazingly kind to allow us to come together to study your word. We are so grateful for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We would be hopelessly lost without your precious word and without your spirit whom you have given to guide us in truth. Lord, I thank you for these people who've come tonight, who have said by their own actions that coming and Studying the word is more important to them than anything else this world could offer at this moment. Lord, I do pray that you would please bless them, uh, that you would specifically bless us by growing us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be changed and transformed by our study of the word. Please help us to submit to the truths that we see. Uh, help us to see areas that we need to repent of, ways that we need to change. And we do thank you for this charge that we have here in First Timothy to fight the good fight. I pray that you would help us to do that, that we'd be a church of people who fight the right battles in the right way, depending on you, our captain. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of First Timothy. First Timothy. Our series is called Fight the Good Fight. Fight the Good Fight. That is a quote from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 in the New American Standard Version. Now, I'm going to be preaching from the English Standard Version. That's what we normally preach from here at Grace Bible Church. Pastor Bart likes the ESV. If any of you ever want to talk about Bible translation philosophy, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, I do like, however, the way the NAS phrases this phrase in verse 18 rather than the ESV. The ESV reads this, this, I, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, or as the NAS says, fight the good fight, fight the good fight. That is the title of our series and the overarching theme of our series. I wanted to study the book of 1 Timothy, partly because it's a book I've never preached through before, and also partly because I've always heard of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus referred to as the pastoral epistles. But I know that these books are applicable not exclusively just for pastors, not just for pastors, but for all Christians. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable, profitable for all Christians, I wanted to approach the book of 1 Timothy and look at it, excuse me, not through the lens of how this can benefit men in pastoral ministry, but also every Christian. Every Christian is called to spiritual warfare. Every Christian is called to steward the gifts that God has given them. Every Christian is called to fight the good fight. That's why I wanted to, for us to spend time studying 1 Timothy. Uh, the title of tonight's sermon is Intro to Warfare, Intro to Warfare, and specifically we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5, 1 through 5. I had a hard time divvying up how many verses we should look at tonight. The natural break is in between verse 2 and verse 3, but two verses alone uh, didn't seem like an effective use of an entire Wednesday evening. 
But then to go all the way to verse 11 was way too much. I was originally starting to go all the way to verse 11, and the more I started typing, the more I realized we would be here till about midnight. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 tonight and prayerfully do them justice by God's grace. And then next week when we come back, we'll look at verses 6 through 11. Our text for tonight is 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 5. I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to talk about the background of the book of 1 Timothy. The text reads this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's look at the background of 1 Timothy. You can see here from verse 1 who the author is. It's the Apostle Paul. You probably don't need a biographical sketch of the Apostle Paul, but you can read his testimony throughout the books of, book of Acts. Paul was a rising star in Judaism. He was a hotshot of his day, a young scholar who had studied at the feet of a learned Jewish scholar named Gamaliel. Paul would have been one of the most respected authorities on scriptural truth, the Old Testament scriptures, in Judaism at his time. It is possible, although this is conjecture, conjecture, and we're going to talk about the danger of conjecture, but it is possible that Paul might have even been present during the events of Jesus' arrest and false trial and crucifixion. Undoubtedly, as a godly Jew, he would have been in Jerusalem for the Passover during Jesus' trial and arrest, trial, crucifixion. So in some regard, Paul might have been present at some of those events. Following the day of Pentecost, when the early church was born, Paul became one of the chief persecutors of the church. He hated Christians. He sought to arrest them and hand them over to torture and death. Later, he will call himself the chief of sinners because of his participation in these events. We see him at the end of Acts chapter 7, standing in approval over those who are stoning Stephen, one of the earliest Christian martyrs. The people who were stoning Stephen were giving Paul or Saul, as he was called at that time, they were giving him their jackets or their coats while they picked up rocks to kill Stephen, the faithful witness of Christ. Paul in Acts chapter 9, though, encounters Christ on the Damascus Road. Paul is on his way to go persecute believers with letters of authority that were given to him by the chief priests and the leaders in Judaism in Jerusalem. He was on his, he's on his way northward from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest Christians, persecute Christians, throw them into prison, and the Lord Jesus encountered him on the road, and Paul was subsequently converted. This amazed people. They thought this man had been the persecutor of us, and now he's claiming to be one of us. Some people initially didn't trust him, but eventually many believers, and especially a man named Barnabas, rallied around Paul, and Paul became an accepted brother. The details of Paul's life after that event are a little sketchy, but we do know that he spent some time in the wilderness. Many theologians think that he was actually trained by the Lord Jesus Christ in doctrinal truth because he says in Galatians that he received his gospel directly from the Lord. Eventually, Paul winds up serving in a church in Antioch, north of Jerusalem, and years after his conversion. It didn't happen right away. I think that's what some people overlook. It did not happen right away, but years after his conversion, after years of learning and serving in the local church, Paul was called by the Holy Spirit to be a missionary. Much of the book of Acts is devoted to Paul's missionary journeys as he travels around through uh, Turkey, what they called Asia Minor back then, modern-day Turkey, and Greece, and the area north of Greece called Macedonia, preaching the gospel. We have a record of four missionary journeys that Paul took. 
The book of Acts ends with Paul appealing to Caesar. He's arrested in Jerusalem, and ultimately he appeals to Caesar for his case to be heard. He's taken all the way to Rome, and the book of Acts ends with Paul's arrest and being placed under house arrest in Rome. That's called his first Roman imprisonment. We know from 2 Timothy that Paul had an, a second Roman imprisonment. The circumstances in his second Roman imprisonment were not great. Uh, they weren't great under his first Roman imprisonment, but at least he was under house arrest and his friends could minister to him and interact with him and bring him food. In his second Roman imprisonment, he was in a terrible, stinking, filthy, cramped dungeon as he awaited execution. 1 Timothy was written by Paul in the time in between Paul's first Roman imprisonment and his second Roman imprisonment. The date was approximately 62 to 64 A.D. 64 A.D. is most likely the year that Paul was arrested the second time and put to death under Nero. 64 A.D. was a monumental year in the early church. Paul was executed by Nero by beheading because he was a Roman citizen. Peter also was arrested and executed under Nero. And Peter was crucified because he was not a Roman citizen. And therefore, he was subject to crucifixion. Paul undoubtedly uh, visited, as many commentators suggest, he visited the churches that he cared about, which were all the churches the Lord helped him minister to, after his first Roman imprisonment. When he got free, what was on his mind was checking in on the churches. That's why he says here in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. A lot of piecing together the historical backgrounds of individual New Testament epistles requires us to be sort of like a biblical Sherlock Holmes. We have to look for the clues and read in between the white spaces as far as the text allows us, not going farther than what Scripture says, and try to piece together the historical background. After Paul's first Roman imprisonment, which church history says he was released from, he went and he visited several of the churches that the Lord had allowed him to minister to years earlier. We see verse 3, he was going towards Macedonia, so that's northwards on the Greek peninsula, and he tells Timothy to remain in Ephesus, which is in Turkey, Asia Minor. Remain in Ephesus, which brings us to our next point of the background. The recipient is Timothy. Timothy is Paul's true child in the faith, as Paul calls him in verse 2. We'll talk about what that means in just a little bit. But Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. Timothy was the one Paul trusted. Paul trusted several individuals. He had Epaphras, Epaphroditus, Luke, Titus. But it seems that Timothy was one of the closest ones that he had a bond with. It's a wonderful thing to have a mentor relationship with somebody older than you in the faith. I have certain men in my life who I view as kind of like my Pauls. I don't call them that because that kind of sounds a little weird, but I view them as sort of my mentors and I still keep in touch with them. Uh, I'm thankful for that. I would encourage every believer who wants to grow, every believer who wants to persevere and to be more like Christ, you need to have someone that you can talk to in the faith, not because they are inspired, not because they are infallible, but because the scripture commands discipleship. Discipleship, uh, I, I love this definition of counseling, which counseling is just a form of discipleship. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. It's important to have somebody, whether it be a peer or somebody that you look up to as, as a father in the faith or a mother in the faith, somebody that you can go to and say, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's, here's where I'm, I, I keep sinning in this way and I want to change. Here's what I'm really wrestling with. I'm confused about this or I'm having a hard time with that. Uh, find a Paul. Find a Paul. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself to our application Timothy was Paul's true child in the faith. The occasion for the writing of the letter, Paul had left Timothy to shepherd the church in Ephesus, which included the need to contradict false teachers and to confirm qualified elders among other church matters. There seem to be these concurrent themes throughout the book of 1 Timothy and even into 2 Timothy, and that is reject false teaching. Take a stand against errant teaching. Take a stand against false doctrine and support and affirm those who meet God's standards for biblical church leaders. Is this important for pastors? Absolutely. Is it important for pastors exclusively? Absolutely not. This is something every Christian should play a role in. Every Christian should be on guard against false teaching. 
Every Christian should be able to take a stand and in a way that is gracious and kind and respectful and yet firm, confidently refute, refute false teaching. Pastors are called to this work, but every Christian should play a role in this work as well. There is such thing as false teaching. It comes to us all the times and in a variety of ways. It comes to us through media. It comes to us through literature. It comes to us through art. It comes to us through false preachers. It comes to us through books. It comes to us through professors and school teachers. The devil is creative and insidious in how he promulgates false teaching. And we're called to take a stand against it. Likewise, we are called to confirm and affirm those in the church who meet God's qualifications for church leaders. It's not just one thing to put off. We also need to put on. So in one sense, all Christians are called to reject false teachers. In the other sense, we're all called to affirm those who are qualified. Uh, Later on, and it depends on how quickly we go through 1 Timothy, we'll get to chapter 3. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see the qualifications for an elder, which is the synonymous term for a pastor and an overseer. Those aren't different terms. Those are interchangeable terms that describe different functions of what a pastor does. But an elder slash shepherd slash pastor slash overseer needs to meet certain qualifications. And if at any time any of you feel that any of the shepherds of Grace Bible Church, myself included, do not meet the qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and also in Titus chapter 1, it is incumbent upon you. You have an obligation and a responsibility to do something about that. We need the body. Pastors and shepherds are not autonomous dictators. We need to be kept in check and encouraged and held accountable to faithful men and women in the church who call us to look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and make sure that we're matching those qualifications. Paul left Timothy to shepherd the church in Ephesus, which included, shepherding included, the need to contradict false teachers and confirm qualified elders, among other church matters. We'll look at it as we go throughout the book of 1 Timothy. I love this as the theme verse of 1 Timothy 1.18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. Let's go back one more time to our passage for tonight, 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You know, one of the commentaries I was reading points out that military warfare is a consistent theme in many of Paul's epistles. Paul himself was not a soldier, he was a scholar. But in his first Roman imprisonment, Paul would have spent much time connected to soldiers, praetorian guards and centurions who had custody of his care. Paul would have observed these soldiers, he would pay attention to their discipline, to their attire, to their demeanor, to how they conducted themselves. And this military metaphor works its way into many of Paul's epistles, including this one, and also 2 Timothy. So for keeping the theme of intro to warfare for tonight's sermon, in this passage, Paul gives us six critical ground rules you must follow to fight the good fight. Six critical ground rules. If you watch any military movies, any warfare movies, if you watch... Uh, any even like police movies that are not comedies but actually are dramas, you know that often a crucial element of the story is the time spent in boot camp or the time spent in a trading academy, the time spent learning the foundation so that when you're out there on the battlefield in a moment of crisis, in a moment of panic, in a moment where everything is falling to pieces all around you, you know how to respond and how to react. In this introduction paragraph, Even though it is a very personal letter from one man to another man, 
It is still inspired by the word of God and is profitable for our growth and for our edification. And we see by observation six critical ground rules to follow to fight the good fight. The first critical ground rule, pay attention to your drill sergeant. Pay attention to your drill sergeant. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. We've gone through the short biography of the Apostle Paul. If you'd like a larger biography of the Apostle Paul, I would encourage you to read the book of Acts. But Paul simply identifies himself not as a learned scholar, not as a former rabbi, not even by that litany of characteristics that he could describe himself that we see in Philippians chapter 3, but he simply says, Paul, an apostle. Paul, an apostle. We know about Paul is that he was a scholar, he was a teacher, he was a public speaker, he was in essence a type of lawyer in the Jewish system of Judaism, but he simply defines himself as Paul, an apostle. An apostle is someone who is sent. An apostle is someone who is, as one scholar put, under another's authority, under another's authority. Paul was sent. Paul was smart, Paul was learned, Paul was articulate. Paul could argue any one of us into the ground. He had a dazzling mind and a brilliant intellect. But he's an apostle. An apostle was a specific type of person. There are no apostles today. An apostle was a specific person who had seen the risen Christ and had been taught by the risen Christ. There were only a handful of individuals throughout the New Testament that were referred to as apostles. There were the 11 disciples that uh, were following Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Uh, Judas Iscariot had committed suicide, and they, by discerning God's will, they assigned Judas's place to a man named Matthias, who became the 12th apostle. Paul is described as an apostle, and possibly Barnabas as well. There's only a handful of people referred to as apostles. If you meet somebody who says that they're an apostle today, they are incorrect. The apostolic era ended with the death of the last living apostle, the apostle John, approximately 95 to 100 AD. Paul says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's a sent individual. He's sent by Christ, and he's sent to proclaim Christ. There's a question of what does it mean to be an apostle of Christ Jesus? Does that refer to uh, the one who sends you? I'm a sent one who's sent by Christ, or I am apostle and my, my, my message that I'm bringing, the subject of my message I'm bringing is Christ. I think the answer is both. It's both. Paul sent by Christ to proclaim Christ. This was the heart of Paul's message, to tell people about Jesus. To tell people about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul says this to the Corinthians, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This actually is a really helpful insight for us in our evangelism. Have you ever asked yourself, how do I know I have the right gospel message? There are lots of different ways to explain the gospel message. I'm not saying there's only one singular way to explain the gospel message. But there is only one gospel message. There is only one gospel message. What is the gospel? Is the gospel telling people that they can escape damnation? Is the gospel telling people that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life? Is the gospel telling people that their life can get so much better if they would just yield to Jesus Christ? I would submit to you, those things are all true, but they are not the gospel in and of themselves. The gospel is simply this. Jesus Christ is Lord, and he is calling all men everywhere to repent. The gospel message is not simply flee from the wrath to come. It includes that. That's the beginning of the gospel. But the gospel is come to Jesus. It's not even come to the cross. Some people get confused with that. Some people think that the gospel is tell people simply about the cross. You need to tell people about the cross. Absolutely. You must tell them about the cross. But it's more than just telling people about the cross. It's telling people about the one who died on the cross. The gospel message is Jesus Christ is building a kingdom, person by individual person, soul by soul, as people bow the knee to him. 
And they do need to know that he died on the cross. And they do need to know that he rose again from the grave. And they do need to know that he loves them. And they do need to know that God is angry with their sin. All of those are under the gospel message. But primarily, first and foremost, the gospel is surrender to Jesus. That's what drove Paul. That's why he says here, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Christ is the one who sent me. Christ is the one who I am going to tell you about. So in your evangelism, as you're sharing the gospel with people, you should be winsome as much as you can without compromise. You should be gracious. Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to give an answer to outsiders. You should plead with people, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 6. We, we plead with you, flee from the wrath to come. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Absolutely. But ultimately, never forget that the message of the gospel is summoning people to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. A lot of people have responded to a false gospel, and they think they're actually Christians when the gospel they've responded to is something less than the full gospel. They've responded to a gospel that is all forgiveness and no submission. That's not a full gospel, and therefore it's not a real salvation. Make sure that you are preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Here's where I get the application here. And by the way, when I, when I try to preach the Bible, I've been increasingly convicted. I want to get right to the application. So unless a text is, is incredibly technical, I'm going to try to phrase all of our points with the application. So where do we get this application from? Pay attention to your drill sergeant. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Timothy knows this, but Paul's reminding him anyway. Paul's reminding him anyway. Timothy, this isn't just me, your friend Paul, saying this to you. This isn't just me, your traveling companion, companion Paul, saying this to you. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. Why? Because God told me to do this. Because God called me and God equipped me and God placed me in this role Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. I love these two phrases that Paul uses, God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. When you see these two phrases together, God most likely, in fact, almost certainly specifically refers to God the Father, the first member of the Trinity. Christ Jesus our hope, Christ Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. This is one of just an implicit support for the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've encountered this, but I've recently encountered more and more people who are more and more confident that Jesus Christ isn't God. The New Testament clearly states several times, one of the clearest is Romans 9, 5, that Jesus Christ is God. But there seems to be on a rise, uh, not just Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, but just other people who are boldly saying that Jesus isn't necessarily fully God. Jesus is fully God. Look at this. Paul's an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Both God the Father and God the Son commanded Paul. Now, what does Isaiah tell us about God and his glory? I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I do not share with another. And yet here, Paul's under a singular command from two individuals, God the Father and God the Son. I love finding any and all supports for the deity of Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament. This is not the only one we'll see in this passage, but I just want to point that out to you. Paul is under command of God the Father and God the Son. Looking backwards, Paul refers to God as God our Savior. He's the one who's rescued us, as we've studied in Colossians with Pastor Bart. God is the one who's called us out of darkness into light and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. God our Savior looks backwards. He could even, if you go with Paul's theology from Ephesians chapter 1, which Timothy would have been familiar with, it could include God's work in eternity past. When he selected, in, the, in his act of election, God selected those who would call upon the name of the Son before the foundation of the world. God saved us before we even existed. God, our Savior, looks backwards, what God has done for us in eternity past, and then at a specific point in history, when Jesus Christ yielded up his spirit on the cross, he said, it is finished, the veil in the temple was torn in two. Jesus died, and then he rose again three days later, securing our eternal resurrection. God, our Savior, looks backwards. Christ, our hope, looks forwards. Paul's grasp on the gospel encompasses all of human history. God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. 
Paul never had his mind too far from that great day that we would stand before God. That great day when we would be presented before God. One theologian said this, Paul always had two days on his calendar. Just two days. This day and that day. He had today. What can I do for God today? How can I live for God today? How can I serve God today? And that day when we stand before him. I'll confess to you, I often have a lot more days on my calendar than those two days. To my regret, I'm thinking about the weekend. I'm thinking about vacation. I'm thinking about the holidays. I'm thinking about important events in my kids' lives, important events with my wife, and I'm not thinking simply about this day and that day. What motivated Paul was the call of the gospel, the fact that he was supposed to tell people about Jesus Christ, that he was under command by God our Savior, and he was to tell people about the hope that we have in Christ. Now, hope in the New Testament is not a a kid's Christmas hope. It's not, I wish I get this thing for Christmas, or I wish I get this thing for my birthday. Hope in the New Testament is a sure and settled reality. Jesus is coming back for me. He promised. He promised in the Upper Room Discourse. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and take you to myself. It's his hope. Hope in the New Testament is a settled, confident reality of something that is not here yet, but it is assuredly going to come. So that is Paul. Now, why do we say pay attention to your drill sergeant? Well, Timothy needed to be reminded of who Paul was, so he would pay attention. And I would encourage you, Have somebody in your life that speaks to you God's truth in the same way that Paul speaks to Timothy. Make sure that you are listening to qualified pastors, that your discipler or your mentor is someone who won't beat around the bush, who won't speak just fluff to you, who won't tell you just the things that you want to hear, but will tell you hard truths. At certain times in both 1 Timothy and especially in 2 Timothy, Paul has to grab Timothy by the collar and say, hey, snap out of it. Get in the game. And we all need that from time to time. Paul is somebody who recognized that he was under authority. He was commissioned by God. The subject of his message was to tell people about God and to point people to God. What was fixed in Paul's mind was the fact that God had called us out of darkness into light and that one day Jesus was coming back to us, coming back for us. You should have somebody in your life that is so confident in the truth of scriptures that they will consistently speak that truth to you the way Paul did to Timothy. Paul wants Timothy to listen up and by extension wants us to listen up as well. Now, another caveat with this, the best of men are men at best. Even the best disciples will let you down. Even the best mentors will fail you. Even the best pastors will sometimes stumble. Make sure that you are always going ultimately to hear the voice of God in the word of God. God speaks through his word. So more than just a human discipler, always be spending time in the word of God. That's your greatest drill sergeant, is God the Holy Spirit speaking through the pages of scripture to your soul. Second ground rule, be a wholehearted recruit. Be a wholehearted recruit. Verse two, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Who was Timothy? Well, Timothy shows up in four chapters in the book of Acts, Acts 16, 17, 18, 19. He's also mentioned in several of the introductions to various epistles. He's referred to at the end of the book of Hebrews as somebody who had been released from prison. Timothy is an an interesting character study. I love how Acts 16 introduces us to him. You can flip there, just Acts 16, 1 through 5, if you want. You can just listen to it while I read it. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. That's a reference to the Jerusalem council that's recorded in Acts 15. Verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Timothy is a young man. We don't know how young he was. Perhaps teenager, maybe late teens, early 20s. He was young enough to leave home and to accompany Paul. He was mature enough to demonstrate authentic faith. His background is interesting. There seems, there's, there's not seems to be, there is a contrast between his mother and his father. Now, being a Greek by blood, 
did not necessarily mean that you were a pagan. But the way Luke phrases this in Acts verse one, uh, 16 verse 1, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but, so there's a contrast, but his father was a Greek, indicates that Timothy's father was not a believer, but was Greek in both cultural and religious observances. Perhaps his father worshipped the Greek gods like Zeus and Hermes and other Greek gods, but regardless, he wasn't a believer. You know, I've just spent six years being a youth pastor, and I've been encouraged by the fact that, and also sobered by the fact that saved parents do not necessarily indicate saved kids, and unsaved parents don't necessarily doom their kids to an eternity of lostness as well. Salvation is not something that's inherited from generation to generation. Every person has to pass through the narrow gate one at a time. It's not by blood. And the fact that Timothy's father was not a believer is not something that was held against him. God can save anybody at any time. Timothy had the witness of both a godly mother and, as 2 Timothy tells us, a godly grandmother. That's another just helpful insight. Uh, we, we do believe, and we'll get to this when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 2, the role of pastor, the, role, the formal role of teacher in the local church, teacher, preacher, pastor, shepherd, is reserved exclusively to men, not just to any men, but to qualified men. But that doesn't mean that pastors alone are the ones who teach Scripture. In the home, you ladies can have a profound impact on the next generation, training both your sons and daughters in the truth. Timothy was used mightily by God for the advance of the gospel, in part because of the work that his grandmother and his mother had put in, faithfully teaching him the Scriptures, undoubtedly praying for him, calling him to follow Christ. And at some point, Timothy was converted and became, as Acts 16.1 describes, a disciple, a real mathetes, that's a learner, one who has followed Christ, not just an auditor, but one who has said, I'm going with Christ and I will follow Christ no matter what. Timothy became a real disciple. He accompanied Paul. I like this, Acts 16, verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Why did Paul circumcise Timothy? If you read the book of Galatians, you would think Paul was being contradictory. See, the Judaizers in Galatia said that you needed to be circumcised to be saved. Paul wasn't circumcising Timothy in order so that Timothy would get saved. That would be adding a work to salvation, which Paul says in Galatians 1.9 is a damnable offense. You don't add works to the gospel. Paul wanted Timothy to be circumcised, not so that Timothy would be saved. Timothy was already saved. Paul wanted Timothy to be circumcised so there would be no unnecessary offense for the cause of the gospel. No unnecessary offense for the cause of the gospel. Paul knew that he was going to places where there were Jews, large communities of Jewish people, and those Jewish people knew that Timothy's father was a Greek. Therefore, most of them would have correctly assumed cor correctly that Timothy was not circumcised, and that was a scandalizing thing to Jewish people. So in order to provide no stumbling block, nothing in the way of the effectiveness of the gospel message going forth, Paul circumcises him. You know, I'm... I'm I look in the mirror when I say this, but sometimes there are things I'm just bugged by. Man, we got to do this, you know, so we're not for the sake of the gospel. And I, I, I know this is a charged topic and there's a dividing opinions and I definitely don't, I'm not saying that we should trust the science at all, at all, at all, okay? But three years ago, we were squabbling over masks and not really focused too much on our witness. Timothy was willing to submit to circumcision. And sometimes we can't be inconvenienced for the sake of removing a stumbling block. And I'll just leave it at that. No, I won't. The gospel calls us, the gospel calls us to make any sacrifice for the Lord. Any sacrifice. That's the thing that's most important in this life, is telling people about Jesus, calling more people to be worshipers of Jesus. The gospel calls us to make any sacrifice. 
If, if you like watching a certain TV show or, or listening to a certain music artist, but you find out that it's offending your coworkers at work and, and they realize, man, this person claims to be a follower of Christ, but they watch this and they listen to this, give that thing up. You may have Christian liberty to watch that show. I'm not going to sit here and say, here are the shows you can watch, here are the shows you can't watch, here are the books you can read, here are the books you can't read. Your conscience may be fine reading certain books, watching certain shows. I feel like I'm talking to high schoolers again, listening to certain music. But if it's causing your effectiveness of your gospel witness to be diminished in the lives of people around you, pitch it overboard. Pitch it overboard. Life is short. Eternity is long. Timothy was willing to submit to circumcision for the sake of the gospel. What are you holding on to? Anyway, we've got to keep going. I thought we'd be ending early. We're not. Let's go to our third one. Depend upon divine assistance for the battle. Depend upon divine assistance for the battle. Second part of verse 2, Paul's standard benediction with a slight addition in here. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is often a, a blessing, a greeting that Paul would give upon people who are receiving his letters. One scholar pointed out that it's in both First and Second Timothy that Paul adds the word mercy. In many of his letters, Paul just says grace and peace or grace to you. Grace and peace or grace to you. But in this one and in 2 Timothy, he says grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It is true that at one specific point in history when a person is converted, they do receive God's grace. They do receive God's mercy. But grace and mercy are something we continually need throughout the Christian life. Even though there is a moment where a person passes from darkness into light, we still continue to need grace and mercy. Grace is God's overabundant, overflowing, bountiful favor that he sends to people, that he sends to those whom he has set his love on. It's the Greek word charis. We named our cafe after it, charis cafe. Grace, God's favor. Some have even said, I like this way, God's smile. The smile of God. Just unconditional affection and love, kindness and blessing that he pours out on his children. Mercy is God's forgiveness. It's God's long-suffering, his patience with our failures, his patience with our sins, his overlooking of our sins, not because he sweeps them under the rug, but because he covers them with the blood of Jesus Christ. Mercy is God reaching out to us in our pitiable state, especially at the point of conversion, but also continually when we stumble and fall throughout our Christian lives as believers. Timothy needed both grace and mercy. Especially as we read in 2 Timothy, there were things that were tempting Timothy to be timid, almost even to some points potentially cowardly. Timothy was not called to an easy task. He was called to a hard task. He was called to be a frontline soldier where the battle was fierce. He needed daily God's grace, God's mercy, and God's peace. Peace is a settled confidence, a tranquility of soul. I believe Paul here is talking about subjective peace. Subjective peace, that's a peace you feel or a peace you experience. That's probably a better biblical term. A peace you experience, but that comes from peace, is the idea of two former enemies are now not just in a ceasefire, but are in harmony. Before, you had been an enemy, in opposition to God. You hated God whether you recognized it or not. But once God called you out of darkness into light and converted you, God was at peace with you. No longer squabbling, and not even just a ceasefire. I think that's important to recognize. This is not just temporarily laying down your arms. You stay on your side, I stay on my side. That's not real peace. Biblical peace is being at harmony, at unity. That's objective peace. But from objective peace comes subjective peace. That's what Paul writes about in Philippians 4, the peace that passes understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Or Isaiah 26, verse 3, God will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in God. Peace you feel, peace you experience. Timothy needed grace, mercy, and felt peace daily because the battle is hard. The battle is hard. Taking a stand for truth is not popular. Taking a stand for what is right often gets arrows pointed at you in your direction. The battle is hard. Sometimes people are tempted to ask, is it really worth it? 
Should I open my mouth in this instance? If I share the gospel with this person, what's that going to cost me at my job? If I confront this person who is in a lifestyle of sin, even though they say that this is part of their identity and it's part of who they am, if I graciously come to them and say, friend, I care about you and I love you, but what you're doing is not an identity, it's not part of who you are fundamentally, it is sinful opposition to the King of kings and Lord of lords and he's calling you to give it up completely When you think about that, you realize this is going to come at a cost. This is going to be hard. I'm not going to be popular. I'm going to be labeled as a bigot. I'm going to be labeled as fundamentalist. I'm going to be said to be narrow-minded. I'm going to be hurtful in people's minds. This may cost me friends. This may cost me family members. This may cost me promotion at work. It may cost me my job. You need daily God's grace, mercy, peace. Where do we get grace, mercy, and peace? Well, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, go to the throne of grace that you may find mercy and for grace to help in time of need. Continually going to the Lord in prayer, constantly going to God in prayer, then going to his word. You have been given an abundance of blessings. Ephesians 1 reminds us God has lavished upon us blessings, but often we forget about them. That's what the psalmist reminds us to do in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. God has given us so many things already. But because it's not like a dollar bill in our wallet, because it's not something we necessarily tangibly see or can feel in touch with our fingers, we forget about it. Or we let the pressing trials and circumstances of this world cause us to forget. I remember just a few weeks ago when Pastor Bart was preaching on uh, the issue of depression. And he used that famous illustration from Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is in the dungeon and he's in the dungeon, I believe, with Hopeful. I think Faithful was the one who, I think Faithful had been killed and I think he's with Hopeful. He's with his companion in the dungeon. And he sits there in the dungeon for days and days and days and giant despair comes and says, why don't you kill yourself? And he's languishing there in the dungeon. And later Christian says to his friend, he says, what a fool I've been. I've had in my pocket all along the promises of God. How do you find grace, mercy, and peace? Remind yourself of what God has already given you. Believe it. Take God at his word. If you're a Christian, God has given you the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, God has given you new life in Christ. If you're a Christian, God has given you a heart that wants to do his will and a mind that can comprehend the scriptures. Don't let trials and and temptations and circumstances cause you to forget what God has given you. You find grace, mercy, and peace in the scripture reminding yourself of what God has done for you, and then continually going to the throne of grace and begging God to come to your aid, as Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 tells us to do. Depend upon divine assistance. Fourth, hold your ground. Hold your ground. Paul says, verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Paul uses two words here. I urged you and remain. Urged is the Greek word parakaleo. It means to come alongside and to enthusiastically encourage someone to do something. This is a strong command. As I urged you. So this is in the same way as I did before, I'm doing again now. Timothy, this is not a trivial matter. This is not a, a, a thing that you can take or leave. You must hold this position. Remain at Ephesus. Remain at Ephesus, pros meno. It's an intensification of the Greek word meno. And, and why I say the Greek, because meno is where we get permanent marker. It's that same root word, you get permanent marker. I have kids, they color on things, and my biggest fear is that they've used a permanent marker. Thankfully, we have a lot of washable markers that they have access to. But sometimes I was like, oh no, they're going to the couch. What kind of marker do they have, right? Permanent marker, you can't get out. Meno is the Greek idea to hold your ground. Take your stand. Stay on. This is the idea of holding fast, continuing in perseverance. Paul had to move on to other ministry work. There were other churches that he needed to check on. Churches in Macedonia, that would be the church, uh, most likely the Thessalonians. Paul had to go and speak to. But there in Asia Minor, in Turkey, in the mega city of Asia Minor, Ephesus, it was sort of like the New York or the LA of Asia Minor. It was the major city that kind of affected, by way of culture, all of the other smaller towns. He charged Timothy to hold his ground at Ephesus. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Why would Timothy need to hold his ground? Because as we're going to see, there were opposition. 
There were people who were standing in opposition to not just Timothy or Paul, but to Jesus Christ and the truth of God's word. Which brings us to point five. Fight the battle of truth for the truth with the truth. Fight the battle of truth for the truth with the truth. Paul says, remain in Ephesus. Why? Here's, here's our so that. So that's are really important, especially in Pauline epistles. You see a so that, pay attention. This is the why. I have kids who they always ask, why, 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 why? And then I look at them and they say, oh, yes, sir, why? Okay, no, why? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Here's Paul's purpose clause, his so that. So that what? So that you, Timothy, may charge certain persons. Charge is the idea of forcefully instructing. I, I can't stand preachers who get up and they say, oh, the Bible could mean this or it could mean this. There's no room for squishy preaching. What would you be like if you lived entirely on a diet of marshmallows and jello? You'd be a flabby mess. People need meat. Charge, forceful instruction, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. He says here, certain persons, who Jesus is, and very likely the false teaching that was being taught in this local church was not on a secondary issue of doctrine, but on the primary issue of doctrine, and that is who is the person of Jesus Christ. This was most likely a Christological heresy. If you've been with us for the last few months in Grace Life, you know that we've just concluded the book of 1 John. And in 1 John, John is fighting very much this same battle, the battle for Christological accuracy, for Christological truth. You cannot get Jesus Christ wrong and be a Christian. To be a Christian means that you have cast yourself on Christ. But if you are casting yourself on the wrong Christ, your soul is in jeopardy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.3 that it's possible to be led astray by a different Jesus. Not that there is a different Jesus, but there are so many different false teachers out there saying, this is the real Jesus, this is the real Jesus. There's the Jesus of Mormonism. There's the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses. There's the Jesus of Islam. There's the Jesus of Roman Catholicism. These are false Jesuses. There's only one true Christ, the Jesus of the Bible. But very often, where false teachers attack, they attack in three ways. They attack our view of the scriptures, our view of salvation, and our view of the Savior. And largely, it hinges on the view of the Savior and the one who provided salvation, where false teachers will come to you and say something that sounds almost correct, but it deviates in this way or in that way. Paul says, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Don't hold back, Timothy. Don't cower in fear. Charge them. They must not do this. Pastors are to be gracious. Pastors are to be kind. Pastors are to be gentle. But pastors must also be firm. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. What is this reference to myths and endless genealogies? I realize we need to wrap it up here soon. Myths and endless genealogies. This is the practice of taking Old Testament passages, like genealogical lists, and reading in between the white spaces to a degree that is unwarranted by faithful hermeneutics, that is unwarranted by faithful study of Scripture. Uh, John Kitchen writes this. The word myths here refers to fanciful and fictitious stories that are passed off as the truth. It has been suggested that it refers to various pre-Gnostic theories that were beginning to seize upon Christian teaching and redefine and rework it to their own perverted ends. He says this on this phrase, endless genealogies. Utilizing the text of the Old Testament, these false teachers search for connections never meant to be made and speculated about various personages, drawing ethical implications from their esoteric speculations. The process became endless, with there always being some new place to search for a signal of some secret message. You, know, you see this oftentimes with people with studying eschatology. 
and they take like gematria, which is uh, a form of numerology, and they're, they're reading into the white spaces. Oh, 666 must mean this, and it must mean that, and oh, 12, 12, 12, 7, 7, 7, and they, they come up like, yes, those are significant terms in the scripture, but we cannot go beyond what is written. And so to speculate, well, the Antichrist is going to come, you know, September 30th, and, or, or the rapture is going to take place exactly on December 1st, or what, crazy things like that, like that's going beyond what is written. And it's the same thing that these people were doing in the church in Ephesus. They were adhering to myths and endless genealogies, spiritualizing the text, making connections that weren't there. They were taking what Paul refers to as the law— He'll call it that later in this chapter, the law, and that's Paul's shorthand for the entirety of Old Testament teaching. And instead of submitting to the clear teaching of the law, they were twisting it and using it to support their own agendas. Why would people do this? Why do false teachers do what they do? Because they want to gather a following. The Judaizers in Galatia, Paul writes about their motives. He says, they make much of you so that you'll make much of them. False teachers do what they do for the sake of money for the sake of sex, for the sake of popularity and pride. They see the church and they see godly people in the church and they see people to prey upon. And they use the scriptures as their own twisted platform to get people to agree with them and to affirm them and to do what they want them to do. Paul says to Timothy, rebuke these people. Fight them with God's truth. Fight them with God's truth for the battle of the truth, for the sake of the truth. Because what happens when they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies? Look at the second part of verse 4. These promote speculations on and on and on with your unsubstantiated theories and your hypotheses that aren't found in the Scripture. It promotes speculations rather than what? The stewardship from God that is by faith. And that's another theme that Paul has throughout his writings, not just military, but stewardship. The idea that all who are Christians, especially pastors, but not just pastors, everybody who's a Christian, is one day going to give an account to God for how they stewarded the gospel message. And if you sit around and you see the scriptures as a plaything or as something to just gather information so that you could have a bunch of cool facts to spit out at your next Bible study so that people think you're the Bible answer guy or the Bible answer girl, or you want to be thought of as the answer person, and you're just using this to puff up your own pride, Paul says that has nothing to do with the stewardship that God has called all Christians to take care of. One day we're going to get him an account for how we stewarded God's truth. Are we going to look back and say, I use the scripture to further my own end? I use the scriptures to get people to think that I was smart, that I was the Bible answer person, that I was the one people had to come to? Or did I submit to the scriptures as a precious gift from God? Did I do what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15? Do your best. Do your best. This means work hard. Give it your full effort. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, like literally making a straight cut like an expert carpenter, rightly handling the word of truth. As stewards, we will give an account. Which brings us finally to our last point. Remember the ultimate mission objective. Don't forget why you're in the fight. The aim of our charge is not to squash these false teachers. Man, I, I will confess to you. Well, let me just read the verse and then I'll confess to you what I need to confess to you. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In my college days and then even sadly in my early seminary days, I wanted to get into theological debates so that I could win. Because people were wrong and I knew I was right. And I would get into theological debates on Facebook, which is just probably the number one most foolish waste of time that a Christian can engage in is theological debates on social media. But regardless, I would get into these theological debates on social media, not because I wanted my opponent to grow in their faith, but because I wanted to win. What a horrible motivation. Why do you do what you do when you take a stand for truth? Why do you do what you do when you rebuke false teaching? Why do you do what you do when you confront your relative or your neighbor or your child who's in sin and you say, friend, I know you think you're right, but this is what the word of God says. Do you do it so that you can win the argument? You can win an argument and lose a soul. The aim of our charge, why? Is love. 
Love is the defining mark of a genuine Christian. Paul cared about his opponents. Paul wanted the opponents of the gospel, if at all possible, to repent and believe and be changed and transformed from the inside out. The aim of our charge is agape, Christ-like love. Where does agape come from? A pure heart, that's the inner man made clean. A good conscience, a good conscience, as one scholar pointed out, is a conscience that is in accord with God's good word. A good conscience is one that is functioning. Your conscience is what tells you from right and wrong. A good one is one that is calibrated to God's word and a sincere faith, an unhypocritical faith. For that to happen in an opponent of the gospel, there needs to be transformation. That's the end game. We want to see people saved. The aim of our charge is not just to win the argument. The aim of our charge is not just to bash people over the head with the Bible. The aim of our charge, parents, the aim of your parenting is so that your kids wouldn't just do what you say, but that they would be changed from the inside out by the power of God. And that they have a heart that's been born again that loves people. And that love comes from a clean heart, a good conscience, and an unhypocritical or sincere faith. But we could say a lot more, but we should close. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've spent studying these verses in 1 Timothy. We pray, Lord, that we would put into practice what we've learned here. Lord, that we would never forget the basics of our training, but that we would constantly be going back to your precious word for our marching orders. I pray if there are any here tonight who have not surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would do so, finding peace and hope and a future in him. We pray this in your name. Amen.